Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where once a week we get together and explore how weather weaves itself into our everyday lives, sometimes with a little blunt force trauma, sometimes a bit more subtle approach. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we're going to be exploring where does my weather forecast come from, at least part one of that. But before I dive into the main topic, let me say, as always, I hope you've had an enjoyable, interesting, maybe educational or informative, intertwined weather week since the last episode. I know for me, (laughs) well, as you know, it's been a couple of weeks since I recorded a podcast. You guys got one that I had recorded on the heels of the previous episode, served up last week, while I was doing that little vacation thing for the first time in a while. Here I was, trying to escape what has been an incredibly active tropical cyclone season, at least here in the North Atlantic, with a lot of very impactful, strong tropical cyclones, trying to escape all that. And I ended up in towns like Tropic and Hurricane Utah. Now, I still have no clue why those things are named what they are. I guess I could read a little bit more if I had the time. But I found it humorous nonetheless that here I was in the mountains. We have this thing, for those that aren't familiar with the region in the southwest, it's something called the Colorado Plateau. And it's, you know, where different tectonic plates came together and they kind of pushed up this area of land. It was really kind of, it it, it is a very neat and interesting area. If you've never been, it's something I do recommend. So there's a lot of just high elevation to begin with. And then there's all these different little features. I, it, it's amazing how you can go from one place to the next. In any case, I was in one area near what's called Bryce Canyon and was coming down to where we were spending the night. We rented a little RV, did that RV thing. <laughs> Passed through this little place called Tropic. So I, I don't know what the elevation was at the time. Six, seven thousand feet. So a couple thousand meters. And, you know, there it was, Tropic. And then coming out the other side, it was it was hurricane. So, I, I, again, I need to dig out and figure out where it was. As I hypothesized in the, one of the previous episodes, wasn't a whole lot of weather going on. I was lucky to get a few clouds while I was out there. Probably the most interesting feature, unfortunately, was we've had wildfires going on in the state of California. And some of that smoke had made its way over to the Las Vegas area. So most people, when they think of Las Vegas, they think of the Strip and all this stuff. And certainly we've had other attention there lately for for a not-so-positive event. But it's all the the fanciful decadence of, of Las Vegas is the Strip and all the casinos and these buildings they build and everything. Well, it's driving into Vegas, and, and when you come from being outside Vegas, you see those lights. Now, we were coming in the daytime, but usually you have this nice, clear view of, of Vegas. But instead, it was just, I felt like I might be in a Los Angeles event, or even, for me, a Santiago event, where you can't even really see the city. So the smoke from these wildfires had moved into the valley where Vegas is, and it really just created this big smog event. You really could hardly see the city as you're driving in. You could make out a few of the the more recognizable buildings, if you will, but only because I kind of had been there before and I knew what they looked like. Any case, that's what I've been doing. Well, (laughs) I say that's what I've been doing. Now, what 
you don't know, well, I told you that I was going on this vacation literally the morning right after I had posted, you know, and uploaded the last couple of episodes, you know, one for that day and one for the next week so it would get fed to you. I was doing the smart thing that I do, which is I tend to do a backup. If, if it's outside my normal routine or, you know, normal rotation of when backups are, if I've done a lot of things like I had and I was leaving town, I wanted to make sure it got done. Now, I have a fairly regular routine, but but there is some gap between when one backup gets done and the next. May only be, you know, 24 hours or whatever, but sometimes if I've been doing a lot of work, it can be some pretty substantial stuff. And I had on all fronts been, you know, whether it was program X, Y, or Z, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to get into those details. But let's just say I did a lot of very important work, hit the backup button, literally, to start the sequence because I knew I'd been doing a lot of things, including both of those podcasts, right? And the computer just froze, just straight up froze. Did a reboot? No, not good. Not good. The hard drive was had essentially failed. I'm not going to get into all the, the details. But I want to thank the folks over at Data Savers here in the Atlanta area for saving my life. So I, I left on and anybody who knows me knows that that was the one of the harder things for me to do was compartmentalize the fact that I had just lost. Now, the good thing, and I knew right away that most of my data was backed up. But there was some important things that while it wouldn't, I'd probably be able to recover most of it, it was going to take a lot of time. And even though I might have lost a couple of the raw files, for instance, on podcast recordings, the final versions have been uploaded. So, you know, I, I had most of the things I needed. But the folks at Data Savers were able to get everything back pretty quickly, reasonable cost. And I, I will tell you, if you've ever had a hard drive failure, or if you've not, you will see. I mean, there's plenty of companies out there that will, I mean, it's a big deal. And, and people know how important data is. And some people have never backed up. And that's even more traumatic. So I certainly wasn't in that situation where they back up, you know, once a year or whatever it is. And it is a reminder even to me, and I'm changing my sequence again to look at more of a real-time backup so I have even less exposure. But these companies, I mean, they, these websites of gloom and doom, you know, they tell you on one hand, we know it's stressful and horrible and all this stuff, but don't worry about it. We're there to save you for the mere cost of a couple thousand dollars or whatever it is. And you do, they you, you put in your situation, they give you these estimates and tell you that, and the prices were through the roof, and I was stunned by that. I, you know, I guess, you know, I understand sometimes these can be very complex events, and when the hardware actually fails. In my case, fortunately, it was just the software end of the drive that that crapped out. But data savers very quickly, calmly, didn't oversell me. Did a great job. Now I, I ended up choosing them because they were local, and I could drive to them. But they they do work nationally and they have flat fixed rates which is also a nice thing so I knew what I was getting into in advance did a great job so if you ever need those services I will put a link in the show notes because I was very pleased and as someone who has a technology background I set a fairly high bar in what makes me happy for my IT vendors or my technology vendors and they certainly surpass that bar so I wish I could say whether it caused that problem but I can't the only connection to this was, like I said, there were some episodes that were exposed, at least the raw recordings, not the overall things. But in any case, any case, I do digress, and it's time to dive into our main topic. 
But before I do that, let me just say a special thank you to all of you who support me on Patreon and those on PayPal as well, who take the time to kick a little money in so that the podcast can remain neutral in terms of its cost and keep plodding forward. So thank you to those that do that. Now, where does my weather forecast come from? This episode idea was brought to you by someone, a listener, Kevin, who works in a high-performance computing center, right? And he, you know, kind of proposed the idea, how does it get from A to B? And the more I thought about it, the more it was like, you know, he's thinking of it as an episode. I'm thinking of it as, wow, that I could do a whole year on just that. So I had to find the middle ground, and I think I'm getting there. But it's still going to be a multi-part series, right? It's really not – I don't want to do – so much that we lose sight of what is important. Which is not bludgeoning you to death with too much techno babble or too much weather weenieism. But I thought it's fair to kind of cover it in phases because it is worth a little bit more than a single episode. I, I you know, I could say very quickly, yeah, okay, you get data, comes from satellites and radars and, you know, different things, et cetera, et cetera. It gets, you know, fed to a model, model kind of crunches it, blah, blah, blah. I could do all that in, let's say, a, you know, the 20 minutes that we usually spend on the main topic or so. But I don't think you would really learn a whole lot from that. So we're going to kind of do this first part, which is focused on, you know, where does that weather information come from? Then we're going to talk a little bit about what actually happens in the crunching and the processing phase what the output then looks like, okay? Then what happens to it, and I think will be an interesting episode, before you kind of see it, all right? Which is, it's not just as simple as models do it and all of a sudden it ends up being put in front of you. And then how it really gets to you and, and how that's changed and evolved over time. So as we know, say in the last 20 years, how we get weather forecast has changed dramatically, right? We have all these different avenues. None of us, you know, for the most part, I know. Here, let me pull up my phone here. First things on my phone, what are, what are the things that show up? Well, I got the time, right? You may have other notifications. But I know one of mine, right there, front screen is, what's the temperature? And it, literally, it's one of the first things that pops up on my screen. And, of course, I can click on that and get more details. But most of us on our mobile devices that we almost all are carrying have something that gives us some information about the weather. My guess is if you are listening to this podcast, you fall into that category. Even if you're not a weather nut, you're getting it that way. But we all still get it a variety of different avenues. Could be websites we're out surfing around. Still could be television or print. I know print's a, a relative term, but whatever outlet you channel your inputs from, you're probably getting some pieces of weather in that component, right? So it's no longer just through your evening news or your morning newspaper or whatever it might be. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, even, even on television, so we think back to the weather channel 
in its early years. And, you know, one of the things the Weather Channel was well known for is local on the 8s. And it used to be your local forecast before that, but local on the 8s is what it became. But back in its early days, we also had fewer sources of weather. Most of our weather forecasts came from a few centralized creators of those forecasts. In the U.S., for instance, it was the National Weather Service. Your local forecast, even though the Weather Channel was getting on and had their people talking, that local on the 8s was actually from the National Weather Service. Now, they revised that and have since kind of created it where it's using some of their own data. But the baseline, and it was the baseline for most evening news as well, the baseline was what was coming out of the National Weather Service. And yes, those people on TV, their, their goal was to tweak it and maybe customize it to their audience. But in a lot of ways, they were a communicator of someone else's forecast. Now, the more experienced would add their local knowledge and understanding to that forecast, hopefully, right? But again, it, you know, if you look at different countries around the world, even today, a lot of that central repository is through these national agencies. Now, there have for a long time also been some private companies involved in that process. But they were it, it was a very small subset. However, today, that has drastically changed. So we are getting these forecasts from more and more sources. And we'll get into that kind of like I said on the back end. But it is important, important context, I guess, to place that says we've changed the spectrum. And this also has to do with where the data that actually serves as the basis for these forecasts actually come from. So where do you think of your weather data is coming from? Right, the, the data that is used to create your forecast. Now some of you probably know that you know there's tends to be these fixed weather stations and it's not just here in the US or you know one or two countries. It's a pretty global thing. Some countries have more than others. Some countries are a little more worried about weather than others as well, so that's logical enough. But these automated stations record some subset of what's going on around us, down here where we are, right? Temperature, humidity, maybe wind speed, how much it's rained, different things like that. And many of you may also be familiar with the idea of weather balloons. Fewer of these, not as many as those land-based stations, that are launched at set times, so a couple times a day, and they go up and they also measure very specifically what's going on up through the atmosphere. Because as we've talked about before, that was one of the things we've learned in this process is this is not a at-the-surface problem. This is an up problem. But, you know, in that mix, ships, as an example, have been recording environmental information for years. I still, when I was learning this in school, I still had this vision of some peg leg guy with a bucket that he had already relieved himself in trying to take the, the sea surface temperature. We, we, we always get in these debates in our community about how good is the data record? How far back does it go? But ships have been recording, you know, wind and sea surface temperature information, but they, they now also play in this, this kind of global mix. So do airplanes, right? They're recording data, and you think about airplanes and how we, we get in this thing with weather balloons. They, they leave from fixed locations. Well, there's a lot of gap there. 
including over oceans, including big voids over land. And airplanes can help fill in that mix at some of the elevations now you run this challenge where most of the readings are at what we would call flight level. But even having that additional information is important. However, if you, if you look at all these things that we send up and that we've built, you imagine there's still this huge gap. And so over the years, what has really filled that gap is we've moved from what's called in situ, which is means in person or these little stations, these measuring it directly, if you will, to what we call remote sensing. And the reason, you know, I got into this topic and I'm probably already going to say too much, and go too long, is this is essentially the class that I'm teaching this semester is radar and satellite meteorology. Now, we're very focused on using things in traditional ways that you may think about it, which is I look at a radar and say, okay, how much rain am I about to get? Or I look at a satellite image and I say, oh, that's that hurricane coming to impact me. But these tools have become, and particularly satellites, have become quintessential cornerstones to how effectively we can forecast. So it's the data from those satellites and the fact that they're all looking around the Earth kind of all the time. And we tend to have two things. When you think about satellites, you really ought to think about two types that we generally use with weather. There's some nuance of this, but two main types. We have low Earth orders. Sometimes they're called polar orders. They don't really orbit over the pole, but they go around the Earth at a very low elevation, relatively. And they're constantly looking at the Earth. And as more nations around the globe have started putting these types of satellites up, we're getting better and better coverage. So it used to be the problem was they could only see part of the Earth and then they'd go around. You know, they were going around it all the time. And so they were only seeing this narrow swath. But as these agencies have worked together, we've got this bigger picture. And we kind of almost get a continuous view of the globe with these closer orbiting satellites, which is good because, they're, as you imagine, they're closer to Earth. they got better resolution. They can see things better. The second type of what we call geostationary. And these are these ones that most of what you see, if you see a satellite image as a consumer, you're seeing pictures from those satellites, generally, not always, that show you here's the United States or here's Russia or here's Australia or whatever it might be, wherever you are. Or here's Europe, or here's the Middle East or North Africa. It doesn't matter, wherever you are, South America. And it's this kind of big, broad picture. Now, sometimes you get focused in, but it usually comes from this big, broad picture produced from these satellites. And they have a few different things. Sometimes you hear about infrared, or you might just see visible pictures, whatever it might be. The challenge with those satellites is while they geo stationary just means that they're kind of always looking at the same spot over the earth so their orbit is set up and this means they're to achieve this they have to be further away their orbit is set up to where they're always kind of fixed over the same spot right and you can think that makes a lot of sense because then you have a few that sit around the globe and they take pictures of same things they don't really take pictures but we'll get into that some other time maybe but they're scanning an environment that, you know, that never changes. So essentially they kind of plot along and they spin, you know, they do their orbit in 24 hours as well. 
And so they're always kind of in this, this fixed spot. However, the challenge with those satellites, like I said, is they don't tend to see things in high, as re- high of resolution. So actually it's these polar orbiters that are probably the most important, or low Earth orbiters, whatever you want to call them, because they give us better resolution, and they tend to do a lot more things. They look at different, you know, I won't get into, again, too much detail. They look at different channels, we call them, but it's just different frequencies that they're measuring in that give us different types of information, maybe focused on the clouds, maybe focused on the temperature, maybe focused on the snow cover, whatever it might be. But it, it is important to recognize that not only are we forecasting, when we do a weather forecast anymore, we're not just thinking about the air, right? We are thinking about the land, the vegetation structure, the topography, the snow cover, the ice cover, as an example, in, in, you know, in the polar regions. And the same thing with the ocean, right? As we all know, land is a very small part of what we do, and that's why satellites had to fill this void. But we also know that all these systems interact and how important heat in the ocean is to so many things with weather, whether it's hurricanes or just modulating how the weather behaves. And we've also had this new interesting little component get added in of these proprietary folks. And you've heard me mention a couple of them before, like Panasonic or Climacell, or even folks like IBM who are starting to build these networks with local governments and stuff and getting stations out. How does all that data work in? Some of them, Panasonic, for instance, has an agreement where they share their data. How all these other agencies and entities will work together, it's still kind of TBD. And the same thing with satellites is we're seeing these companies talk about throwing up these smaller satellites that are going to do this monitoring. And don't lose sight of the fact that they're spending the money. So we've got this challenge of, you know, what is the right thing in terms of mix for them to use it for selling forecast to people that need a more sophisticated forecast versus providing it to the governmental agencies that might be the ones that run the models, et cetera. Although Panasonic also runs their own model, right? And IBM is doing some of that with their, you know, Watson and Deep Thunder and, all those things as well. But that's kind of a question for the future. But just know that over the years, since satellites have become more common, starting in the 70s up until now, that the vast majority of the data that's fed into the models now more than ever comes from satellites. All these other things play a role, but satellites make up more and more of that data. Now you may ask, How in the world does it get from all these different things to the computers that are going to crunch and do something with them? And the the short answer is it depends. Now, this has also changed for the better in recent times because we have more ways to communicate information to central repositories or centralized locations that need it. But that also adds complexities as we're finding out with how the internet actually works, right? It's not always everybody getting along. And this is, as we've talked about before, this is a lot of data, right? It's kind of constantly being thrown out there. These satellites are taking these measurements round the clock, lots of different levels, lots of data. 
So it used to be that all this stuff was built on private networks. Now, a lot of times they use the public networks or the Internet, if you will, to communicate this because that's just the nature of how data moves now. Very little of it is done on, you know, we've built a special private network or connection from point A to point B or from various points to get to point B. So they do leverage the Internet. But it still is going to be very dependent on what it is. I mean, if, if I've got a, a weather station at an airport, well, you know, any of us who've ever put up a personal weather station, we know you can easily throw up the data of the Internet. It, it, it's not hard to imagine how that gets to the computers. It travels, whether it's on a private network or not, it travels very much the same that any data that we move around. But what you may wonder is, okay, that's great for stuff that's already kind of on the earth. What about all these other things? You know, what about a radar? Well, radar, kind of like a weather station's there. It's already kind of terrestrial. But let's focus for a moment on the things that aren't. You know, you got things, and, and balloons have been this way for a long time. They, they use something called a radioson. And as the name implies, they essentially have receiving stations. You know, I'll, I'll use the U.S. as an example. So we have all these locations that send up the balloons. And there's also receiving antennas that receive those signals. Now, there are fewer receiving stations than there are balloons, if I'm remembering correctly. So that goes up, and, and it's recording stuff, and it's just sending it back down to that receiving station. And satellites aren't that much different in that, Satellites are gathering this information, and they're broadcasting, and they broadcast down to antennas. Now, there are complexities in that, as you can imagine, as we are getting more sophisticated satellites. Like you've heard me mention this GOES-R or GOES-16 satellite that's new. It's got a lot more information that it's trying to share, more frequent. And so a station has been developed specifically for that, and I think it's in Wallops, Virginia, which was already a receiving station for satellite data that's getting new antenna that can also withstand, withstand, withstand bad weather, okay? And so it won't go down even if a hurricane were to hit that area. But it's designed to handle this increased amount of data. Now, we've also gotten smarter in how we compress and compact things to send more data over existing, you know, levels of throughput. But we've gotten, again, we get smarter all the time in all these avenues, right and bringing it together so that there are these receiving stations what what you may not realize is for some of the satellites you can actually build and i'll put a link in the show notes you can build a receiving station and actually get the satellite data yourself it's kind of interesting if you wanted a little hobby project i don't know that i do it i don't know that it's the most efficient thing in the world but it's kind of neat the idea that you could throw an antenna up there and be receiving satellite data yourself. Build your own little station. And, and before the age of the Internet, when all this stuff was thrown around and moving around really quickly, you could imagine that being really cool. We've also had these challenges, as I mentioned before. We've got these frequency constraints. That's the other challenge that is impacting all these things. And it was a particular challenge with this Go, new Go satellite in that more and more people want more and more of the bandwidth to do more and more things over the air, right? And this is meaning there's less and less bandwidth that's being conserved for official 
operations, if you will, or government-based operations, like the GO satellite setting this information in. So it is something to keep in mind, and it is important. I, I just want to recognize, I, I understand we live in this world where, you know, there's there's this delicate balance between public and private, and I get that. But I really don't want anybody to lose sight of the fact that without this GO satellite, no matter what these other satellites are that are thrown up until they're up, until they're providing, until you can prove that there's some sort of reliable replacement, these satellites are critical, critical to what we do. So you know, maybe monitor. Um, I'll do my best to bring up from time to time when these issues come come to light, like I did when it was coming out before and there was an opportunity to speak about it. All right, so it, it all comes from the sky, wherever it is. Fr- from these receiving stations, again, follows that same network, if you will, that the ground-based measurements do. But it's not, you know, it's not much different than how do buoys communicate. And they do. They send their signal up first to a satellite. And then that gets transmitted back down in some cases. So it, it, it just depends on what the mechanism is. But usually, there's this mix of, again, sometimes things go from the earth, go up, and then come back down. Sometimes they're just going from the up part to the back down. And then they use these advanced networks that they built to get to the central repository. Now, sometimes there's that complexity of, with radar and satellite, we, we need to see that information right away. It's not that they're designed to feed the models, even though they do feed the models. And so the first step is to get it and then to share it. And part of that sharing is to send it to the models. So, you know, there's complexities in all of that. But then the next step is, now your tendency would be to think, oh, okay, it goes to the model, right? And we'll lead off next time in this series, and like I said, I'm going to do it every three to four weeks. We're going to do another step in this. With just what happens when that data gets dumped in the model, and I'm going to give you a few things to think about, just a few primer questions to realize that your tendency is to think it just gets dumped in, but the reality is, no, it doesn't. And I saw this little graphic that talks about, this is something we call data assimilation, and understand there, there are centers, there are research groups that focus just on this problem because it's not that simple, all right? And they had a nice little slide that covered it. It was somebody from the ECMWF. Let me find his name. Lars Isaacson, who did not, who's done a couple nice presentations. But here's the challenge we're dealing with. As we know, model forecasts have errors, but observations also have errors. Model forecasts fit this nice grid. Observations don't fit that nice grid. So getting to a true ground truth isn't as simple as just observations. It's trying to make the model see closer to observations. And we'll talk about this, like I said, when we get into the crunching. So you had these models with errors, observations with errors, CPUs to do a lot of crunching, and then people with a lot of good ideas. And you had these cute little icons of people. The end game is to try to create a real state with as minimal of an error as possible. But it's a little trickier than than you might think at first glance. So that's where your data comes from. That's how this whole process starts. But like I said, what's kind of interesting and we'll get into in the next step is it's not as simple as just saying, here's a core dump of all this data. Here's all this data. Now turn it into this quality forecast. It's a little more nuanced than that with a lot of people and a lot of computer power thinking about it. There's as much computer power that goes into getting the model ready to forecast 
as actually doing, creating the forecast itself. Because as we all know, garbage in, garbage out, right? It's not going to be any good otherwise. All right. Do you have questions? If you have questions with as I'm going through this series, whether it was stuff that I didn't cover today, and Kevin, I'm sure you can chime in if, if you have thoughts on this, but anybody, if this is the right level of detail, not the right level of detail, let me know. You know, I, I can also hit, like I said, little snippets, maybe complimentary snippets in follow-up episodes that kind of as we're going through this process. So reach out at whatisitabouttheweather at gmail.com or whatisitabouttheweather.com slash contact. Either way, the information will get to me. And thanks to Aaron. You know, I, I asked this question about how people, the speeds people listen at, and Aaron made some interesting comments um, over on the, the YouTube version of, of the episode, which, again, is a great place to kind of lead more open feedback. So thanks for doing that, Aaron. But... He talked about how the Woody, Woody the Woodpecker sound would not sound different or shouldn't sound different, yet he's now interested in me doing it. But I'm not going to do it this episode. I'm going to sneak it in in some future episode. I promise to do it, but I'm not going to do it this episode. I'm also going to put a link in the show notes. We've had an interesting, you know, we've had this, a lot of conversations with as active as this hurricane season's been. We, we had another hurricane, Ophelia, that became a non-hurricane right before it was about to impact Ireland. And there's been a lot of debate about how that was communicated and if we're using the right terms. I'm going to put a link into an article about this whole topic. If you find that debate and how we're communicating interesting, you know it's something that I find interesting, you might want to take a look at that article and ponder it a little bit. And let me know your thoughts on that as well, of course. And we'll try to work it in in some communications we have in a future episode. All right, with all that, I think it's time to wrap up. Thank you for all who reach out. Thank you for all that rate the podcast, tell others about it. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, who helps support the podcast financially so that we can do our best to remain revenue neutral, yet keep plugging along. RSVP, rate, share, validate, pledge. You know the drill. Whatever way you're doing, it's appreciated. But until next time, until next time, I don't know what's coming up on Halloween. Maybe I'll do some sort of Halloween-related topic. i got to figure that out. I have something in, in mind, but that kind of hit me this week that maybe it's time. With this new Geostore movie, right? We got this new Ge- we got, I got a new weather movie. Here it is. I hardly ever get out to movies anymore. And, you know, I hear all these great reviews about Blade Runner, a new Blade Runner movie, which is right up my alley as well. But Geostorm, I saw it coming out, and that's my first thing is i got to get to the movie theater to see that. It's really sad. Because I hear it's not a great movie. But for me, it'll probably be wonderful. But until next time, whether you go see Gia Storm or whether you're just outside enjoying the sun or the rain or whatever it might be, don't forget, how else is that impacting you? What else might you learn? Because we all know, as we all know, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. There's your two white sofa. Production. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather.